You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. So there are several good reasons why we might study a town or a city in Scripture. Different Bible places are significant for different reasons and they very often held significance for the people who visited them. Just a couple of examples, Jerusalem has the special significance of being the place where God has chosen to put his name and thus became the centre of worship and will be again in the age to come. On the other hand, in the days of Jeroboam, Dan and Bethel became famous for being centres of idolatry in Israel and people visited them for that reason. Capernaum has the significance of being where the great light of the Lord Jesus Christ appeared the brightest but they received condemnation for they did not take heed to the miracles which he did. So we can appreciate that different cities had different significance and we can often take great excitation from the events that happened therein. And our subject tonight, God willing, is Shechem. In my opinion, a particularly fascinating city. Depending on exactly how we count them, there were at least 20 significant events that happened in Shechem. And we won't be able to look at all of them, but I hope that we'll be able to appreciate why Shechem was a very significant city in Israel and take lessons and encouragement from the events that happened therein. Shechem lies right in the centre of the land of Israel. It sits in a plain between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, which will be very significant. And it lies within the tribal borders of Manasseh, but its inheritance as a city was given to Ephraim. It's a very fertile part of the land with good supplies of water. Indeed, we're told that Jacob had a well and kept livestock at Shechem. It's possible to visit Shechem today, but not advisable. It's in the West Bank and under strict Palestinian control. There are, of course, great tensions between Israel and the Palestinians. It's actually known today by the name Nablus. And it was in the news just last night. There was an attack by Israeli forces on the city. Actually one of the deadliest there's been over the last couple of years. 11 people died and dozens were wounded. However, those of you that know Brother Paul Barnes, a good friend of mine, won't be surprised that he did manage to visit Shechem last year. Obviously with the intention of seeing Shechem, ancient Shechem, and these are a few of his photos. I don't think the quality is that great, but I thought they were worth putting in. Um, and this is where he was in the area of the ancient Canaanite city. At the top left, there's Jacob's well, which is inside a, a small church. Top right is the enormous city walls. You might be able to just about see Paul standing at the bottom. Bottom left are the ruins of the Canaanite city. And the bottom right could be the pillar, the stone of witness that Joshua set up, but I'm personally not sure it's in the right part of Shechem for that. And you'll see what I mean later. 
The word Shechem, as a proper noun, appears 63 times in the Old Testament. From my counting, 48 of those are concerning the city, and 15 are concerning Shechem, the son of Hamor, who was also the prince of the city of Shechem, and that we read of in Genesis 34. There are also three New Testament occurrences, which we'll get to later. And Shechem means neck or shoulder. It's believed that name is given to it because it sits as a neck between the two shoulders of Ebal and Gerizim. And it comes from a root word, Shechem. I'll just give you the strongest definition of that. The neck between the shoulders as the place of burdens. That's what this word Shechem means, giving the city its name. And it's very interesting to see some of the uses of that root word, because it's absolutely used in the context of bearing burdens. Psalm 81 verse 6, I removed his shoulder from the burden. Isaiah 14 verse 25, I'll break the Assyrian, then shall his yoke depart from off them and his burden depart from off their shoulders. It's the word shoulders there, that's the word Shechem. And so Shechem has this meaning of bearing burdens. It will be a place of burden bearing. And I suggest there are actually three main things that Shechem is significant for. More than three, but three in particular. And the first of those was that it was a place of burden bearing, which we get from the meaning of its name. The second thing that gives Shechem particular significance is its location between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. They were the two, these were the two mountains upon which Moses commanded Israel to repeat the blessings and the curses. Mount Ebal on the left being the Mount of Curses and Gerizim being the Mount of Blessings. And this gives the city of Shechem huge significance. It's the place of decision. Do we choose the curses of Mount Ebal or the blessings of Mount Gerizim? Shechem lies right in the middle. That decision is made in Shechem. To consider that another way, the only way of passing from the Mount of Curses to the Mount of Blessing is again to go through Shechem. It's a place of decision. The third thing then is that Shechem was a place of witness. And we'll develop all of these ideas, but Shechem is notable in the scriptures because it, there are certain landmarks recorded in the record that are mentioned repeatedly. And I think they stand as a witness to future generations that Shechem is indeed this place of bearing burdens and making decisions regarding our knowledge of God's covenants. And concerning those landmarks, I, as I said, we don't have time to go through everything that happened at Shechem. But I believe for the most part, these landmarks are all on one very significant piece of land in Shechem. And it's this piece or parcel of land, as the scripture calls it. This is a thread that runs through and it's this thread that will mainly follow tonight, God willing. The record of this parcel of land at Shechem and hopefully give ourselves a foundation for the biblical significance of Shechem. 
Now, no prizes for guessing the first occurrence of Shechem, because it's in the reading we had in Genesis chapter 12. So, turn with me there if you're not there already. A lot of what we say tonight has its foundation here in Genesis 12. It's a significant passage concerning Shechem. And we're familiar with the records, because at the end of chapter 11 and the start of chapter 12, is God calling Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. The first three verses of Genesis 12 give us the foundation of God's promises to Abraham. In verses 4 and 5, Abraham and his family depart from Haran and go forth into the land of Canaan. So Genesis 12 verse 6, And Abraham passed through the land unto the place of Shechem, unto the plain of Moreh, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And Yahweh appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he built an altar unto Yahweh who appeared unto him. So Abraham was led, first of all, to Shechem. It's the very first place that Abraham comes to in the land of promise, which straight away is very significant. And the promise concerning the land is given at Shechem. Unto thy seed will I give this land. It's of course the first mention of both the seed and the land in the Abrahamic promises, which were of course developed throughout Abraham's life. And we won't go there, but Galatians 3 verse 16 of course explains the seed to be primarily Christ. This is the promise of everlasting inheritance of the land to the true seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Galatians 3 will also tell us that if we are Christ's, then we are also Abraham's seed and heirs of this same promise. So Shechem is the place where this promise is given. And straight away, it's a place where Abraham is required to make a decision. We are told that the Canaanite was then in the land. Joshua 24 verse 2 tells us that Abraham's family background was serving other gods. He then comes to Shechem. So does Abraham mingle with the Canaanites in the land or does he choose God and his promises? And we're told he builds an altar unto Yahweh. So if you like, this is the first decision made at Shechem. Abraham chose to worship God and to separate from the Canaanite gods of the land. Shechem is immediately a place of decision and a place of worship as the first place that Abraham comes to. Another thing to bring out here, we're told that Abraham was led to a specific spot in Shechem, the plain of Moreh. This actually seems to be a bad translation in the King James Version. The word plain really means oak tree. It's the oak tree of Moreh. Most of the translations pick that up. So Abraham was led to the oak tree at Moreh. And Moreh means teaching. There's only two other occurrences and we'll get to one of those at least later. So at Shechem there was an oak tree, but that's not what the verse really says. It's Abraham was led unto the place of Shechem, unto the oak of Moreh. 
And I think this tells us there was a distinctive oak tree at Shechem. And it seems as though it was in this exact spot by the oak of Moray, the oak of teaching, that God first speaks to Abraham in the land. And this oak tree is mainly what I mean by landmarks at Shechem. It will be mentioned repeatedly, which will be interesting to see. Now, we might imply that this is a significant bit of land, this place where God first spake to Abraham by the oak tree. Well, I think Abraham, it seems that Abraham certainly thought so. In Acts 7 verse 16, we are told that Abraham bought a sepulchre at Shechem into which Joseph would later be buried. We're not told this specifically, but it's likely the sepulchre was in the same vicinity as the oak tree. And I believe when we continue to piece together the record at Shechem, the record of this parcel of land at Shechem, I think it's extremely likely that it was in the same parcel of land. So Abraham bought this parcel of land. And when we move on to the next occurrence of Shechem, I believe it's the same place where Jacob comes to in Genesis 33 and there's a sense in Genesis 33 that Jacob is following in Abraham's footsteps because he's been in exile in Aharon after fleeing from Esau but God commanded him to return to the land of promise that's Genesis 31 verse 3 and chapter 32 we have the account of him wrestling an angel Chapter 33 is his reunion with Esau. And then Genesis 33, verse 18. And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram and pitched his tent before the city. Again, maybe not the best translation there. The revised, trans the revised version has, and Jacob came safely to Shechem. Because the word Shalem is simply shalom, peace. Jacob came in peace to Shechem. And so Shechem was a place of refuge to Jacob. Shechem will actually become one of the cities of refuge when the law is given. And so he pitched his tent before the city. That word before is the word panim. Probably better translated in front of the city. Now, why would he do that? Well, he's in the very same plot of land as Abraham, his father, was. And we notice the next verse. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for 100 pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tents. There he erected an altar and called it El Eloi Israel. And again, if we were to compare Acts 7 verse 16... Jacob buys the same plot of land from the same people for the same amount of money and also builds an altar unto Yahweh, exactly as, as his grandfather had done in Shechem, in the same plot of land that Jacob has now bought. And it's significant that this land was outside of the city, in front of the city. There's a very good reason for this. The city of Shechem was a Canaanite city. 
and we were told back in Genesis 12, weren't we, that the Canaanite was then in the land. And it's clear from the atrocities that follow in Genesis 34 that the city of Shechem was actually a horrible place. A stark contrast from the parcel of land owned by the patriarchs, a place where God promised everlasting inheritance of the promised land. This parcel of land speaks of the hope of Israel because that's what it was to the patriarchs. They made a decision there to separate from the wickedness of the world in hope of the promises. And when we read of Shechem, I think we see a big contrast between that parcel of land outside the city and the Canaanite city. And we certainly see that, I think, in chapter 34. Just look at chapter 34, verse 1. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. And of course, they're still in Shechem here, following on from the end of chapter 33. So Dinah goes out into the world. I think she makes the decision to go into the city. This is where Shechem, the prince of Shechem, most likely sees her. And he saw and took, that's Genesis 3 language, isn't it? And lies with Dinah and defiles her. Now this may or may not be rape. But what we can say for sure is that Dinah made this decision to go into the world to see the daughters of the land. She's the only girl among 13 offspring. Maybe she wants some female company, maybe she's just curious. Apparently Josephus records that this was a time of a Canaanite festival. But in any case, this decision has disastrous consequences. It undermined Jacob's attempt at separation as he pitched his tent outside the city. It leads to her defilement, whether or not it was rape. It ends in a situation that she would regret. And it has enormous personal and ecclesial consequences. Jacob will later call Simeon and Levi instruments of cruelty for what they subsequently do in destroying the city of Shechem. Dinah was Simeon and Levi's full sister. They were all Leah's children. And this leaves Jacob, their father, deeply embarrassed. And indeed, it's a burden for him at the place of burden bearing, following several ill-judged decisions from his children. The decision of Dinah to go into the city and the decision of Simeon and Levi to destroy the city. It's an awful record. And it's actually not the only time you read of awful events like these in Shechem. There's a, a similar record in Judges chapter 9. The city of Shechem was full of sin and whoever entered it came out in a much worse state than what they went in. That was true for Dinah and it will be true also for Abimelech in Judges 9 and later on King Jeroboam. <coughs> and it reminds us of the importance of separation for us, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? Which bit of Shechem are we in? Are we walking in the hope of Israel, in the parcel of the land, outside and separate from the city, 
Worry, too curious of what is happening within the city walls and choose to enjoy the pleasures of sin. The example of Dinah is certainly harrowing. Choosing to do this can not only be destructive for ourselves, but it can bring problems into the ecclesia and be damaging and destructive for others also. So the lesson is simply to stay out of the city, stay in the ecclesia, in the parcel of land in which God has promised everlasting inheritance of the land to the seed of Abraham. <coughs> what follows in chapter 35 is also interesting regarding Shechem. They're still at Shechem here. But God speaks to Jacob in chapter 35 verse 1, telling him to go to Bethel and build an altar. And Jacob subsequently decides he has to cleanse his family. Genesis 35 verse 2. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. Let us arise and go up to Bethel and I'll make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. So he decides to cleanse his family. We might consider this a good example of spiritual discernment and leadership. Jacob saw the problem and took appropriate action. After all, God hadn't even asked him to do that. But perhaps another way of looking at this is that surely these idols, these strange gods, are not a sudden surprise to Jacob. Surely he knew about them before the destructive events of chapter 34. You can only wonder. But one does wonder if that had been the case and he had taken action before or taken action to cleanse his family earlier. Maybe the events of chapter 34 wouldn't have happened. We must never delay casting idols out of our household or out of the ecclesia. But nonetheless... Jacob does take the appropriate action eventually and commands his family to put away the strange gods and to purify themselves. Verse 4, they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand and all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid, Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. So Jacob hides these things under the oak which was by Shechem. Again, Shechem had this distinctive oak tree. Abraham had arrived at this very place. God spoke to him here. He built an altar here. Having previously been from a family of idol worshippers, we could even say, perhaps, that Abraham himself had to put his idols under this oak tree at Shechem, spiritually. And now Jacob would do the same. And this completes an interesting set of parallels between Abraham and Jacob at Shechem. They both arrive in an area of Canaanite presence. They both build an altar unto Yahweh. They both make a conscious decision to put away strange gods. Under the oak tree. They both buy the same parcel of land for the same amount of money off the same people in the very place where everlasting inheritance of the land was promised. And Yahweh appears, un whoops, 
And Yahweh appears unto them both in Shechem. Jacob knew exactly what Shechem signified to his grandfather Abraham. And I wonder if Jacob himself uses the oak tree as a witness, as if to say to his family, this is where Abraham was given the promise of land to his seed. He made a decision to separate and to put away his former life. So must we for the inheritance of the promise. So clearly Shechem had great significance in the life, in the lives of the patriarchs. And if we move on to Joseph's life, Shechem again is very significant for Joseph. For the sake of time, I'll just summarise this on a slide. This isn't quite as responsive as I hoped it would be. Um, Genesis 37, Jacob tells Joseph to seek his brethren at Shechem, which brings him to the field. I suggest the same parcel of land. Albeit, however, his brethren are in Dothan, not Shechem, when he gets there. In Genesis 48, Jacob blesses Joseph with one portion above his brethren. And that word portion is the word Shechem. So we might wonder if that portion was the parcel of land at Shechem that Jacob gave to Joseph. And it seems as though it was, actually, because John chapter 4 tells us that Jacob gave this parcel of land to Joseph. And we'll look at John 4 later. Genesis 50, jo Joseph makes commandments concerning his bones. And that's attributed to him as an act of faith in Hebrews 11. Because it shows his vision of the resurrection that he wanted to be buried in Israel. And we know that he actually commanded his burial to be in his parcel of land at Shechem, in the very sepulchre that Abraham had originally bought, and that Jacob also later bought. So it continues the record of this parcel of land and its significance in the lives of the patriarchs. Now, the next significant occurrence of Shechem, moving on a bit now, is in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Shechem isn't actually mentioned by name here, but it's the first passage in Deuteronomy that tells us about the blessings and the curses. So Deuteronomy 11, reading from verse 26. Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of Yahweh your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which you have not known. And it shall come to pass when Yahweh thy God hath brought thee unto the land whither thou goest to possess it, thou shalt put the blessing upon Mount Gerizim and the curse upon Mount Ebal. Are they not on the other side Jordan, by the way the sun goeth down, in the land of the Canaanites, which dwell in the Champagne, over against Gilgal, beside the plains of Moray. Now that's one of those two other occurrences of the Oak of Moray, the plain of Moray, that we saw in Genesis 12. For ye shall pass over Jordan to go in to possess the land which Yahweh your God giveth you, ye shall possess it and dwell therein, 
and you should observe to do all the statutes and judgments which are set before you this day. So Moses, of course, speaks in Deuteronomy before he is about to die. He has not allowed himself to enter into the land of promise. But he tells this generation that will enter the land that when they enter, they must go to Shechem. That's effectively what he is saying. And proclaim the curses for disobedience from Mount Ebal and the blessings for obedience from Mount Gerizim. So Shechem isn't mentioned by name, but the association is absolutely there, not just with the mountains, those shoulders either side of Shechem. But it says, are they not on the other side of Jordan, beside the Oak of Moreh? Same phrase as in Genesis 12, where Abraham received the promises, where Jacob hid his idols, or his family's idols. Moses is saying they must go to Ebal and Gerizim, which is near that distinctive oak tree. Deuteronomy 27 is the chapter that details the curses. <coughs> Got them on the screen, actually, but perhaps one observation we could make, we won't read them, but one observation we could make from that list is that, is this not a list of things which were already happening from what we know, in the Canaanite city of Shechem. Because, of course, from Genesis 34, we know that sexual immorality and violence were common practice, and that's just the instances we know about. So we know that within the city walls of Shechem, there were all sorts of wicked practices, which this chapter tells us would be cursed. But again, outside the city was that parcel of land that belonged to the patriarchs, sitting there as a witness to the hope of Israel and the promises. And Shechem here is the place of decision. Do we choose Mount Ebal and the curses of the Canaanite city, or do we choose the blessings on Mount Gerizim, focusing our lives in separation outside the city, centred on the hope of Israel? And the most significant verse, arguably in Deuteronomy 27, is verse 26, isn't it? Cursed be he that confirmeth not all of the words of this law to do them, telling us that man under the law is cursed. And we'll return to that point in a minute. But for now, let's just turn to Joshua chapter 8. Because the commandment concerning these blessings and curses is in Deuteronomy 11, and the detail of the blessing and curses is in Deuteronomy 27, 28, but the actual enactment of them happens in Joshua chapter 8. The enactment of Deuteronomy 11, I should say, and the proclamation of the curses in chapter 27. So Joshua 8, reading from verse 30, and this is actually a fulfilment of what Moses commands in Deuteronomy 27, verses 4 and 5. So Joshua 8, verse 30. Then Joshua built an altar unto Yahweh God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses the servant of Yahweh commanded the children of Israel, as is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones, over which no man hath lift up any iron, 
and they offered thereon burnt offerings unto Yahweh and sacrificed peace offerings. And he wrote there upon us the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. And then in the following verses, the blessings and curses are uttered. Six tribes on Ebal, six on Gerizim. And the valley that Shechem is in is a natural amphitheatre. These blessings and curses would have reverberated around the city and around the valley. Everyone would hear them. Of course, it says in Deuteronomy 27, after all those curses and all the people will say, Amen. They all heard them and consequently everyone would be under a burden to do them. For as we read also in Deuteronomy 27, Cursed is he that confirmeth not the words of this law to do them. But just to zoom in on one aspect of this record in Joshua 8, something that confused me when I first read it, why does Joshua build an altar with all the law written on it on top of Mount Ebal? Why would it be on the Mount of Curses instead of the Mount of Blessings or even in Shechem itself by the oak tree where Abraham and Jacob had already built altars? Well, I think this actually gives us quite a wonderful picture. We know from Hebrews 13 verse 10 that Christ is our altar. We know from John 1 verse 14 that he is the word made flesh. So this altar with all the law written on it clearly speaks of Christ. But why is it on Mount Ebal? Well, come with me, please, to Galatians chapter 3. Because here we get a very interesting set of connections which explain why the altar had to be on Mount Ebal, had to be on Mount Ebal. Remember what the curses tell us. Galatians 3 verse 10 quotes that verse in Deuteronomy 27. Galatians 3 verse 10, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So everyone under the law is on Mount Ebal. Without Christ in our lives we are on Mount Ebal, the Mount of Curses. We are cursed under the law. And just carrying on in verse 11, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. And then look at the language in verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. The altar of Christ had to be on Mount Ebal because Christ was made a curse for us. We, therefore, spiritually are no longer cursed. We no longer have to stand upon Mount Ebal. <coughs> Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the point is that the blessings of Deuteronomy 28 on Mount Gerizim are simply impossible for us to obtain 
without there being that altar on Mount Ebal, without Christ being made a curse for us. But also if you just think about this a little more, we are not on Mount Ebal because we are not under the curse, but we're also not yet on Gerizim, though we're on a journey there, we pray. So where are we? Well, brothers and sisters, I think Shechem effectively represents our lives in the truth. We can only get from Ebal to Gerizim by passing through Shechem. And this is what we spend our lives in the truth doing, passing from the curse to the blessing. And maybe this is why Shechem is such a mixed bag in the Bible record, for want of a better phrase. It's a place of horrendous Canaanitish sin and it's a place of incredible faith and worship and separation. All sorts of things happen in Shechem and all sorts of things can happen in our lives. But it's a place where we're required to make that decision and be separate, having witnesses around us to the hope of Israel. We're required to be separate and to make that decision to choose the blessings on Gerizim for the burden has been taken up for us through Christ Jesus. And whilst we're in Galatians 3, just notice how the original promise at Shechem is also quoted here. Um, in verse 16. And applies the seed also to us if we are in Christ Jesus. So a wonderful picture I suggest. And we'll consider it a little bit more at the end. But the next place I'd like us to go to is Joshua 24. <coughs> Joshua 24. In verse 1 we're told that Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. And again it will become clear it's not anywhere in Shechem. It's once again the same parcel of land with the oak tree. Joshua 24 is Joshua's final speech to Israel before his death. And he is desperate to exhort them to make that same decision in Shechem to serve Yahweh. And this seems to be why he has come to Shechem to give this speech. In verses 2 to 13, God speaks to Israel through Joshua, recounting Israel's history to an extent and showing all the things which God has done for them. And in verses 14 to 18, Joshua and Israel make a covenant to serve Yahweh and a stone of witness is set up. And in verses 29 to 31, Joshua dies and his legacy is recorded. In the final verses, the bones of Joseph are finally laid to rest at Shechem. It's a magnificent chapter and I'd love to spend more time on it, but... I just want us to see how Joshua uses Shechem as a place of witness. Just read from verse 14. Now therefore fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt. And serve ye Yahweh. 
And if it seem evil unto you to serve Yahweh, choose you this day whom you will serve. Decision in Shechem. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. So Joshua and his house have made their decision. So must Israel also. And it's interesting that Joshua uses previously recorded events at Shechem to exhort Israel. There's a clear allusion in verse 14 to the example of Abraham. Especially when we also compare verses 2 and 3 of Joshua 24, which are the verses that tell us that Abraham served other gods when they dwelt on the other side of the flood. How Abraham put away the gods which his father served. Joshua is calling on Israel to make that same choice as Abraham. He also cites the example of Jacob. Notice verse 23. Now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you. That's quoting word for word from Jacob in Genesis 35 verse 2. When he cleansed his family at Shechem and hides the strange gods under the oak tree. Verse 25. Joshua sets before them a statute and an ordinance. They are the very same Hebrew words used in Deuteronomy 11, verse 32. The passage concerning the blessings and the cursings, curses. And it says, you shall observe to do the statutes and judgments which I set before you this day. And where is Joshua standing? Well, Israel make a covenant, don't they, to serve Yahweh? Verse 25, Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of Yahweh. So Joshua sets up this great stone under an oak at Shechem. This oak tree crops up again. And in verse 27, behold, this stone shall be a witness unto you. For it hath heard all the words of Yahweh which he spoke unto us, and it shall therefore be a witness unto you, lest ye deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, every man unto his inheritance. Shechem was this place of witness. Joshua reminded Israel of previous events at Shechem, of the decision of faith that was made at Shechem. He sets up the stone of witness in that very same place, and by the way, that stone of witness will appear as a witness later on in Judges chapter 9. Don't have time to look at Judges 9, unfortunately. Under the oak tree, which I suggest itself was a great witness of Shechem because it stood there for all those generations and led back to those promises made to Abraham. And Joshua 24 is all about serving Yahweh. Twelve times the word serve appears between verse 14 the commandment to serve in sincerity and in truth and it's very clear that we can't serve God and the false idols of this world Joshua tells us that they firstly have to put away those strange gods and choose to serve Yahweh that's the decision Israel made at Shechem they make a covenant at Shechem 
And the chapter says in verse 31, following Joshua's death, Israel served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua. Really is a wonderful chapter. Sadly, the rest of Shechem's Old Testament history isn't as rosy. Abimelech kills his brothers and makes himself king at Shechem in Judges 9 and events that echo, as I mentioned earlier, Genesis 34, when the whole city again is destroyed. The kingdom is divided at Shechem in 1 Kings 12. Jeroboam rebuilt it as a major city in the northern kingdom, but such was the faithlessness of the northern kingdom. There are subsequently verses in the prophets which condemn Shechem for bloodshed and wickedness. But the final chapter of Shechem in scripture is when Jesus visits the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4. So come with me there, please, as our final passage. Shechem was of personal significance to Jesus. It's the place where the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, was first promised inheritance of the promised land. And again, it will be obvious as to which part of Shechem the Lord visits. It says in John 4 verse 3 that he left Judea and departed again into Galilee and he must needs go through Samaria. There was no need at all for Jesus to go through Samaria. The Jews had, and Samaritans had a hostile relationship. There were other routes which the Pharisees would take to Galilee to avoid Samaria. But Jesus needed to go through Samaria, it says. And it's clearly because he needed to meet this remarkable woman at Shechem. Verse 5, then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, or Shechem, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Now that's the only time we're actually told Jacob had a well at this parcel of land. So Jesus arrives at this familiar piece of land and is thirsty. He asks the woman for a drink. And this simple, this simple thing forms a basis for a remarkable conversation. And Jesus uses this well of water to expound the truth to her in a remarkable way. So much so that the woman leaves forgetting to fill her water pot up and doesn't even give Jesus his drink. An interesting thing about the woman of Samaria is that she clearly knows her Shechem history. She absolutely knows where she lives. She knows it's Jacob's well. And she says to Jesus in verse 12, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? She also says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. That's Mount Gerizim, a place where the Samaritans had built a temple because they thought Mount Gerizim was the place that God had chosen to put his name. So this woman knows what happened at Shechem, but she doesn't know the spiritual significance. And Jesus, much like Joshua in Joshua 24, makes allusion to previous events at Shechem to expound spiritual lessons to her. 
Jesus asks for water. The woman in verse 9 wonders why he would ask a Samaritan woman for water. But Jesus answers in verse 10, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Verse 13, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up to everlasting life. And there are two different words for well in this chapter. The word well which the woman uses in verse 11 and 12 simply means pit. It's the same word as bottomless pit in Revelation 9. The word well which Jesus uses and which is also used in verse 6 to describe Jacob's well means a spring. And with this idea of a spring and the words that Jesus says, we get allusions to the living waters spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. The woman saw Jacob's well as a means of nourishment for her corruptible body. Christ saw Jacob's well as symbolic of the hope of Israel, of having living waters. And so we have a further item of witness at Shechem. This well fed by a spring that had provided spiritual nourishment at Shechem for thousands of years and indeed is still there today, albeit with a church on top of it. And Christ will further exhort her to make a decision. Remember how there was an emphasis on serving in Joshua 24? Well, we get the same emphasis in this chapter from verses 20 to 24, the word worship or similar, appears ten times in those five verses. He exhorts her in verse 23 to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, quoting the words of Joshua in Joshua 24 verse 14, fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and in truth, in uprightness of mind and in truth. So Jesus teaches this woman the hope of Israel and exhorts her to worship the Father using Shechem itself as a basis, for it is indeed a place of decision and of witness. And so we've seen, haven't we, brothers and sisters, Shechem to be a place of burden-bearing. It's a place where Israel were given the burden of keeping the law. It's a place where the spiritual burden was felt by Abraham, Jacob, and the nation of Israel, that they should put away strange gods. It's been a place of decision. Again, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Joshua, Israel, the woman of Samaria, all choose to worship Yahweh. And we are exhorted from Shechem to worship him in sincerity and in truth. And it's been a place of witness. The repeated visual reminders serving as a constant witness to Israel right the way through the Bible record. The parcel of land the magnificent oak tree, the stone of witness, Jacob's well. These things don't change and neither does the hope of Israel or God's promises. They were made in Shechem under the oak tree and we can still spiritually find them there now. Because when we consider the well and the altars that were built by Abraham, Jacob and Joshua, the stone of witness 
the tomb in which Joseph was buried, the oak tree, the very name Shechem. I suggest it all points forward to Christ. He is our burden bearer. He is the Shechem. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As I said before, our journey through Shechem is effectively our current juncture in our lives in the truth. It's the only way we can get from evil, having been baptised into Christ, who has made a curse for us. It's the only way we can get to the blessings on Gerizim. We can only do that by passing through Shechem in our lives. And so let us choose the precious things of the truth that are indeed an everlasting witness to us that we may be blessed with faithful Abraham on Mount Gerizim. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org if you enjoyed the episode then please share it with others until next time may god bless you in your studies and your walk towards god's kingdom amen